Alright, Galatians. Paul is writing a letter to the people of Galatia. This is modern day Turkey. Uh, the intended audience is Gentile. More Gentile than Jew. We'll see that uh, almost immediately. It's written somewhere between the years 48 and 56. It's one of Paul's earliest letters, if not his earliest letters, depending on who you ask. That's all I'm going to give you as far as background information. That's all. I think that's all we need. We could get into all the weeds. I'm not here to get into all the weeds. I want to show you the forest. Okay, here we go. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Christ Jesus, blah, blah, blah. This is the greeting. Every letter starts with a greeting, right? He greets the people. He's an apostle, yada, yada, yada. The letter, the body of the letter starts in verse 6. And here it goes. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to Himself through the loving mercy of Christ. This is the premise of the whole letter. They're turning away from God and He's shocked. And He wants to address it. He says, you are following a different way that pretends to be the good news. Good news, of course, is usually translated gospel in most of the translations. So I'll I'll use gospel there. Pretends to be the gospel, but it's not the gospel at all. There's something that pretends to be the gospel that is not the gospel. That's important to remember. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preached to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other gospel than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servants. In other words, he's going to begin to defend himself, and his first thing is, hey, look, I'm not getting anything out of this. If I tell you what the gospel is, it's not going to help me one bit. Because the gospel is, yeah, it's good news, but it's a call to sobriety. It's a call to a life. Uh, It's not doing me any favors because all it does is get me beat up by the Jews. So, I'm I'm not going to uh, mince words and, and I'm not going to try to be Uh, have fear of man. I'm not going to have man's approval. I'm only interested in telling you the truth, in other words. Uh, And so that's that's how he opens up. And he begins to lay out point after point of a defense of himself. Here's who I am, and, and, and he's making sure they understand that he has the authority to say what he's about to say. But everything he's about to say is based on them turning away from the gospel to some fake gospel. And he says in verse 11, Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source, and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. That's pretty authoritative. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by His marvelous grace. Then it pleased Him to reveal His Son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away to Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. I'm not lying about this. Right? And here's what I did, and there was a process. He's, he's letting them know that this, is, this was my process of how I got to where I am to where I am a trustworthy vo- voice. And he says, after that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. And still the Christians in the churches in Judea didn't know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. 
Chapter 2, then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the, the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised Though he was a Gentile, ah, we begin to get a little bit more specificity as to what the problem is. They're asking Titus, or there are some who would say that you need to be circumcised, which of course was one of the one of the rules, one of the part of the law of the Jewish faith. And Titus, who is a Gentile, got saved and. Uh, he did not get circumcised because he did not add to his salvation something from the law. And he's saying here that the, the people that were with him uh, and Paul himself did not feel that Titus needed to be circumcised. And that's in direct opposition to what the problem in Galatia is, is that they're, they're wanting them to be circumcised. They're wanting them to do things that are of the law, adding the law to the faith. Uh, which comes by grace. Even that question, verse 4, came up only because some so-called Christians there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in, they sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as He had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so we begin to see that you have Peter and you have Paul. Peter is ministering to the Jews, and Paul is ministering to the Gentiles. This letter is written to the Gentiles. And again, modern day Turkey, and he is... He is writing to church, the church, the church in this region. There are several churches in this region. This is, this is not a city. This is a region. And these are, this is a Gentile church. And the, uh, the Judaizers, is what they're called, have come in and said, hey, you need to add these things from the law. And Paul is saying, no. I am the apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm saying that it only takes the gospel, the true gospel. In fact, verse 9, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged, encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised, but afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. In other words, he had the fear of man. As a result, other Jewish Christians followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are both Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. As we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. This is our first kind of take a breath. We see that Paul is articulating here in one and a half chapters his defense of himself. And again, he is saying there is no adding the law to what we're doing here. It is only by the Spirit uh, and, and by faith and by grace that we are saved. And he even brings up now this, uh, this confrontation with Peter. Like he's playing, the, he's laying the trump card on, pre, on Peter. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. I don't care if you're the top dog. We're not going to let this fly. If you're a Gentile, 
You come to faith in Christ, there's no extra step of going then and doing all the old law Jewish things. It is only a one-step process, faith in Christ. Then in verse 17, he kind of makes a little short theological point here to make sure we understand what is being said. He says, suppose, verse 17, we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? See, this, Paul likes some of these hypotheticals. And he says, no, that's, that's silly. Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner. If I rebuild the old system of law, I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ, and we, know, we all know this verse, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Then he makes a real point here in terms of sticking it to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians! What is wrong with you? Who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of His death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be after starting your Christian lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? What is being said here in the beginning of Galatians 3? Salvation experience, the, the, the starting point, is by faith. It is not by works of the law. Once we have the starting point, that's the starting point. And by the way, someone was asking for a tangent earlier. Okay? That's the starting point. One of the problems with the church today is we view salvation as the end goal. Let's get everybody saved, and then, okay, that's it. Okay, let's go on and get more people saved. Salvation is the starting point. You have a whole life to live after that. Stop trying to get saved, and then just sit around and wait on heaven. That is not what life is supposed to be. You get saved, and then you spend a lifetime getting sanctified. That is the next step. And that is a process, and it takes time. And what he's saying here is, you don't get saved by the Spirit and then turn around and get sanctified by works of the law. It's both. It's not. It's it, it's both by the Spirit and it's neither by the law. It's not one one and one one is the other. So let me illustrate this here with a little story. There's uh, the the great Christian giant Christian watchman Nee from China tells this story of a man who was out in the river. Not a great swimmer. And he's out and he's being taken under by the current and he, he's really starting to lose it. And he, he's, he's not going to make it. And there's a man on the bank who is a world-class swimmer. And the world-class swimmer sees this man that's struggling in the river. And the world-class swimmer obviously can, can deal with the river. But the man is struggling he, he bobs up and down. He comes up and he cries out, Hey, help, help, help. And the man on the bank simply stands there and does nothing. Finally, the man goes under and doesn't come back up. The world-class swimmer on the bank jumps in the water, swims like he's never swum before, grabs the man, swims back to the bank and puts him on the side and begins to do all the things, little mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, little this, little that, trying to bring him out of that. And the man comes out and, and he lives. 
There was an observer there who knew that the man was a world-class swimmer. And he saw him. The, the observer couldn't do anything about it, but he knew that the world-class swimmer could. And he saw him do it. But he saw him wait and see that man go under. And he asked the world-class swimmer afterward, almost with like indignation, you could have done something. Why did you wait so long? Were you a coward? What, what's going on here? And the world-class swimmer said, if I had gone out there while, while he was flailing around and acting like that, we'd both be dead. I had to wait until he gave up completely. That is salvation. You get saved at the point when you give up completely. As long as you're still trying to do it yourself, you're one of the Galatians. Now, what Paul is saying is, you have to give up to be saved. How foolish are you? You have to give up to be sanctified too. Every little piece of your life, you have to give up completely. You can't do it on your own. You can't try to have your little piece of it as well. You have to wait and let Him do it. In other words, we could say it this way. If there's any piece of your life, or, or if all the pieces of your life, there's not one piece where you feel totally helpless, you got a problem. There should be at least one piece in your life where you feel totally helpless. Because that is where the Lord steps in and saves. When you get to the point where you got it all together, you got a problem. That's the idea behind what he's what he's going for here in the beginning of chapter 3. And then he does something very interesting. Verse 5, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Watch this. Verse 6, in the same way Abraham, all of a sudden he's pulling out Abraham. In the same way Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Why do you think he would appeal to Abraham? He's kind of like the, the basis of all the law and the, like the whole old system. Well, not only the basis of it, but he predates it. When does the law come? With Moses. So Abraham, and, and this is why, again, he's addressing this letter to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have no concept of Jewish law. So he goes all the way back before the law and says, hey, Abraham is where we need to go because we will see that in the case of Abraham, God counted him as righteous because of why? His faith. That was before the law even existed. See? So the real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. Not in the law. I could add to that. Verse 8, What's more, the Scriptures look forward to this time when God would declare to the Gentiles or declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when He said, All nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under His curse. For the Scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. No one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the Scriptures say, It is through faith that a righteous person has life. 
This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When He was hung on the cross, He took upon Himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the Scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing He promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. The reason why the faith principle works and the law is moot is because we go all the way back before the law to see that Abraham was justified by faith. So clearly it's not going to be a a problem for us here after Jesus. It's always been that way. Now he gives an example. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. Watch this. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. Most translations say seed. I kind of like seed. God gave the promise to Abraham and his seed. Notice that the scripture doesn't say to his seeds. As if it meant all of his descendants, or many descendants. Rather it says to his seed. That seed is not referring to Isaac. It is referring to Christ. God gave the promise to Abraham and his seed. That seed, of course, means Christ. This is what I am trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking His promise, for if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. If we could be saved by the law, there would have been no need for the promise. So we have this promise, And we have the law. But we're not saved by the law. So the obvious next question is what? What in the world is the point of the law? Verse 19. Why was the law given? And here we find something else. A little interesting. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But it was only designed to last until the coming of the seed who was promised. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. Alright, now let me illustrate this. I hope I can illustrate it. I hope my projector here will come on and project something. Why was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. In other words, the law is a mirror. The purpose of the law is so that you can look at it and see how you don't cut it. The purpose of the law is not to get you saved, but rather simply to show you that you're not cutting it. Okay, now, I got no camera and I got no board, so... I'm going to close up shop here and I'm going to draw on the board. It's the only way because it's the only space I got. All right. Here's the illustration.
We have creation. At creation, we have God, which I'm going to represent by this triangle. Hopefully, God doesn't get upset at me at that, but I don't know how else I'm supposed to represent it. We have God, and we have man. And in this opening phase here at creation in the garden, God sees man, and man sees God. In other words, there's nothing in between them. Then, there's some fruit being eaten. We have this thing called the fall. And the fall puts a wall between man and God. So that when God is looking toward man, God sees the wall and not man. And when man is looking toward God, the man sees the wall and not God. And there's a disconnect. They can't see each other. Now that's not to say that God can't see man. You understand what I mean? But what I'm saying is they can't see each other in terms of an intimacy, in terms of a relationship. There is no relationship there. They cannot see each other because something has come in between them. Then, God says, well, there must be then, therefore, a promise. It doesn't have to be a promise, but I'm gracious, and so therefore I will make a promise. But the promise... It's a promise, which means you have to wait for it. So we'll come back to the promise. Meanwhile, there's still the fall. So in the meantime, while we await the fulfillment of the promise, God gives the law. Now, as we said before, the law is a mirror. So the man is still looking at the wall. There's a wall between man and God. But now as the man looks at the wall between him and God, there's a mirror on that wall. And it doesn't tell him that he's the fairest of them all. But whereas he was just looking at a wall, which didn't help him at all, now he's looking at himself. He sees the law, he sees himself in the mirror and he says, I don't add up. That keeps man in a state of humility and in a state of seeing his need for God. Well, that goes on for about 1,500 years until Jesus comes. In other words, the promise is fulfilled and so if the law is a mirror, what is the fulfillment of the law? Glass. You got it. It's a two-way mirror. You ever seen any cop shows where they go in and they have the interrogation, right? They got the cop and they got the they got the interrogator and they got the guy that's being interrogated, right? And they have this mirror and in the room the the guy that's being interrogated sees the mirror, he can only see back to himself, but on the other side of that mirror there's people hanging out in the other room and they can see through the mirror. So on one side, they have mirror. On the other side, they have see-through. And this is the fulfillment of the promise. Because now, on this wall, between man and God, we have a two-way mirror. On the man side of the mirror, we call that faith. And on God's side of the mirror, we call that grace. 
And now, when the man looks at the mirror, he's no longer seeing himself. Watch this. He can look directly through the wall and he can see God again. Now when God looks back at man, this sinful man over here, when God looks this way, he runs into the mirror. When the mirror reflects back onto God, who, according to Colossians 1.15, is the image of the invisible God. That's right. Now, according to the fulfillment of the promise, when God looks at you, He sees Jesus. he sees himself. Now here's the cool part. The fulfillment of the promise is retroactive. Abraham was justified by faith. It didn't it wasn't fulfilled until Jesus came, but it's all in there. God's outside of time anyway. Also, the fulfillment retroactively applies to all those people who were in law. For 1,500 years, the people came and they offered sacrifices and they did all these things. Did the sacrifices actually help them? Not really, but yes and no. Because if the, the sacrifices were offered in faith, How do we know they were offered in faith? Because the Lord said, if you'll do these things, then you'll be clean. You'll be, uh, we'll be okay. Everything will be okay. And then they did them. In other words, they obeyed. Alright. While my screen's pulling back up, I'm just going to go to my paper Bible here. the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. We just explained that. The law was designed only to last a little while. God gave it the law through Moses to be the mediator between God and the people. Now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when He gave His promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the Scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 23, he makes another analogy. Which is the analogy of the guardian. Watch this. Verse 23, by, what, by the way of faith in Christ, before the way of Christ, sorry, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put that another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. 
And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are His heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Chapter 4. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up. Even though they actually own everything their father had. They actually own everything their father had. They actually own everything their father had. They have to obey, because they're children, they have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent Him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that He could adopt us as His very own children. And because we are His children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts prompting us to call out, Daddy! Abba Father, Daddy! Intimate title with God the Creator. Verse 7, Now you, now, 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 since when? Since Jesus came. Now, since the promise was fulfilled, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are His child, God has made you His heir. Even though they actually own everything their father had. Everything that God has, you own. Not down the road in the future. Now. Everything that God has, you own. That's prosperity gospel. No, it's not. It's Paul. We are so clueless when it comes to understanding what we could have. And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about Mercedes in that business. We, but we are clueless to what we could have because everything that God has, we own now. Since Jesus came, that's now. Every time since Jesus came is now. Now. Why can't we access it? Basically two reasons. One, you don't have faith. Because that's how you access everything. But two... There's another principle in here, and it's not explicit. But it, 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 I am positive it's in there, and I can bring around some other scriptures to support what I'm about to say. The principle is this. When does the child, who is the heir, get to have the stuff? When he grows up. We're not operating in our inheritance because we haven't grown up. You've got to mature. I'm not talking about getting older. I'm talking about maturing spiritually. This is another big thing that the church does not understand. It's really the same big thing that I said earlier. We get saved and that's it. That's not it. Get mature. 
the more you grow in maturity and, and in the knowledge of God, I'm not just saying knowing about God, but really getting to know God. And He will mature you. You don't mature yourself. But, but you, can, you can expedite the process of maturity. You can get spiritually mature faster than you get naturally mature. By simply being obedient. Every time there's an opportunity to say yes or no, you say yes, you will expedite the process. And the, the quicker you get to maturity, the more things of God will be opened up to you. I cannot express this enough. If there's one thing I wish the church understood, it's this. There's more. Well, you've got to have faith. And you've got to have maturity. And as long as you don't have either one of those two things, you'll never touch this stuff. You might get to heaven, and that'll all be great, but we're going to get to heaven, and then we're going to realize all the stuff that we could have done. Alright. i got... I got a few minutes. Let's see if I can wrap up. If I can, I can. Here we go. I'm going to skip the next section. Jump down to verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. He makes another analogy. And he says, tell me, you who want to live under the law. Notice he's still harping on the same. We have not left the main point. The main point is, stop following the law. That's silliness. we got Jesus now. He's still on that point. He has not left the point. Tell me, you who want to live under the law. Do you know what the law actually says? Now this is a play on words. He's saying, you who live under the law, we should say law, you want to live under the law of Moses? Do you know what the law actually says? In other words, the law meaning... The first, first five books, which is also called the law. Because he's going to come back to Abraham. Okay, which Abraham is pre-law. But he's saying, do you understand what the first five books actually say? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons. One from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. These are Sarah and Hagar. The son of the slave wife was born... You know this story? Sarah and Hagar? Okay. Sarah is the freeborn wife of Abraham. Hagar is the slave wife. He has the promise with Sarah, but they get antsy and they go off and do their own thing in the flesh and he has a child by Hagar. Okay, so that's Genesis. Okay, verse 23, the son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. Now watch this. This is crazy. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai where people receive the law. What? Hagar represents Mount Sinai where people receive the law. In other words, Moses and the entire Israelite history. Hagar represents that. That doesn't make any sense. Hagar represents Mount Sinai where they got the law that enslaved them and now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She's the free woman. She's our mother. In other words, the Gentiles are the descendants of Sarah and the Jews are the descendants of Hagar. Which is obviously in the natural not true, but spiritually that's the truth. And this statement would have got Paul killed. Do you see how asinine this would be to the Jewish ear? They, I mean, they would have. I mean, they literally would have tried to kill him, and they did try to kill him. You understand what I'm saying here? He's turning it totally upside down. The Gentiles, or anyone who believes in Jesus, is the heir to Sarah, not Hagar. 
The, the law people are heirs to Hagar. As Isaiah said, Rejoice, O childless woman, who, who ha- you who have never given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what did the Scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son. In other words, get rid of the law. For the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. Again, totally crazy to the first century Jewish person's ear. But good news to the Gentiles. Or anybody that's Jewish who also accepts Christ. Okay? Chapter 5. I'm not going to read this whole part here, but he's still on the he's harping on the same point, and he gets down to verse 12, and this is really where literally the exclamation point in some translations happens in verse 12. He says, These people who are trying to get you circumcised, I wish they would just castrate themselves. <laughs> that is how forceful and how Uh, serious he is about this issue. That is the end of Paul's main idea to the church in Galatia. Is there anyone who does not understand the main idea? Five more minutes. Look at verse 13. The main idea having been brought to a close He says this, which is, given the context of everything we've said, very enlightening. Because what people will say is, I'm not supposed to live by works. It's by faith. It's not by works. Yeah, it's not by works. It's not by works of the law. It doesn't mean there's no works. Because Paul has made it very clear, we're not saved by works. And yet, he says this, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out because just, uh, be, beware of d- destroying one another. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Now the, the real translation there is walk according to this walk. Walk. Walk according to the Spirit. And you will not do what your sinful nature craves. If you walk according to the Spirit, you will not do what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit desires, gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not um, uh, under obligation to the law of Moses. When you fire, follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Watch this. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, hello, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, hello, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Period. No questions asked. Well, wait a minute. I thought I was supposed to be saved by faith and it's not about works. It's not about working your way into position by working the works of the law. But that does not discount this. 
you come to faith, you become sanctified by the Spirit, and you put away these things. Or else. Now this is the other thing that the church has a big problem with. They think they're saved because they raise their hand and pray a little prayer. I'm sorry. If you're doing these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yes, this letter is written to the church. He is not writing a letter to sinners, evangelistic, trying to get them saved. He's writing to people that he assumes are saved, and he's saying, you better not do these things, or you will show that you are not saved. And you have a big problem. We've got to be serious people about pursuing the Lord in holiness. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or jealous of one another. I'll let you read chapter 6 on your own. It just follows... Not, I'm not going to say it's not important, but the main idea that's been established, and then the counter idea, is hey, don't get the idea that just because we're free means we get to do whatever we want, because that is not the idea. That's the message of Galatians. All right. Questions.